We have been considering the subject of friendship. We, you might uh, hopefully perhaps put together this idea when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, we considered the Lord Jesus Christ and the Great Commission. And in, in this idea that the Lord Jesus give to, gives to us in the Great Commission, as He talked to His apostles, we very quickly understood that the relationship to the Master... That is, to our Creator, to the Sovereign God, the relationship that is required such that we can merely follow Him in this life is a relationship that can in many ways be described as a master and a slave. The Lord Jesus uh, said, uh, spoke to His people as servants. And we understand that word servant or bondservant has to do with a relationship that is more fashioned after this idea of slavery. And it has to do, if you might recall, with the simple idea of ownership. The idea that when God calls us to Himself, obviously He owns us uh, by way of creation. But also He owns us by way of redemption. And we understand that our relationship to Christ, while it certainly can be described as friends, the Lord Jesus said, you are my friends, we see. That was associated with obedience. But we also understand this relationship of master and slave. We shouldn't wince from that. Slavery is a, a word that is not very popular today. But nonetheless, when you consider the glorious master of the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully it grows in attraction. One who cares for us deeply. One who has purpose from the beginning of all time to set before all the means in which we might come to the Lord Jesus and enjoy a relationship with Him. But the other idea that we considered was this idea of the context of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have finished the little letter that the Apostle Peter wrote, his first letter, and we see in that that the theme of that letter is a theme of suffering. And while suffering may not be something that we want to study intensely, hopefully we are persuaded that Peter is describing to us the context of our faith. That is, the environment in which we live out our redemption is an environment not of the sweet graces and pleasures that one might expect, but a a context of hostility to the gospel. The reality is is that what it is that God has called us to exiles us from this sinful earth, makes us a citizen of heaven. And so in that, that's the context in which we live. And what we see in that master and slave relationship with what it is that God has called us to, but also uh, we considered as we look at this topic of friendship, this idea that in order for us to carry out the mission that God has given to us, and this is a mission that isn't uh, involved primarily as individuals, but as a church, we see that the relationship that's required here is one of sibling friendship. Sibling friendship. It's the very pinnacle, the very standard of friendship. Is that brother that is a friend? This is the idea. God has called us to such difficulty and challenge. He has set before us the glories of making the desert into a glorious garden, spiritually and physically. And in that we see that the only thing that can sustain that kind of demand is true friendship. True friendship. Last week we considered 
a few ideas when we looked at David and the mighty men in 1 Chronicles 12, as well as the Apostle Paul's relationship with Timothy. We considered this idea that it was a profound purpose that uh, drew them together, that uh, their friendship was more durable than difficulty, that it had a covenantal commitment, that their devotion adorned their duty, and that it wasn't natural. That is this idea that in order to enter into true friendship, we have to have the resources that are only available in Christ. And if we're going to get anything from the Lord Jesus, we have to be in union with Him through redemption, through conversion, through Him giving to us life. So that's the idea. Now, I'd like to draw your attention today to, to what the Proverbs tell us about friendship. So the Proverbs are certainly rich as we come to understand what it is that the Lord is helping us to know about friendship. And so I'd like to draw your attention really to four different or five different points here in friendship. And the first is this, to be a true friend, must one must be virtuous and pursue purity of heart. Pursue purity of heart. Proverbs 22, 11 Now, so in your hearing, obviously you heard from 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is a relationship that David and Jonathan had. And this is probably the most beautiful narrative of a friendship relationship in the Bible. And so again, we're, you know, with that in the back of our minds, we're looking here at Proverbs and what we see here in Proverbs 22.11, He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king... As his friend. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. Now, the idea here is that purity of heart or virtue and the ability to be heard, gracious speech, breaks down barriers and clears the way for true friendship. So, the the very pinnacle of disparity between humanity and position is that of a king and a servant. Is it not? And what the wise man is saying here is he really models what his father before him did. Solomon recognized that the king should be a friend to the servant because they are useful for one another and they can enjoy a godly, true friendship. And that's what Solomon is getting at here. So the idea, again, personal, commendable, consequential virtue is rare, unnatural, highly valuable and transformative. And it's the prime energy producing ingredient in friendship. Personal, commendable, consequential virtue is rare. You're taking to yourself biblical virtue. You should ask yourself the question, so what? What difference does it make in your life? Who around you is... is has had the quality of their lives increase because of your virtue? This is a reasonable question that we should ask. If our redemption is real, if the Holy Spirit is all-powerful and has taken up residence in us through our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, then our virtue will be consequential. It will make a difference. And it is a foundation for friendship. How many of us have commented on the virtuous character of an individual? See what an impact it makes and how it inclines us to holiness. When you think about 
a certain individual. It may be a person from history that you've studied, or maybe a neighbor or a friend, or it might be uh, someone, someone in your family. And you've commented or you've considered their virtue, maybe a single aspect of who they are. And you might begin to, to use them as a model. Rightly so, the Apostle Paul said, follow me. The Lord Jesus, of course, directed us to do what he does. And so we see, we see this idea. Now, but one of the interesting things about our culture, in our self-absorbed culture, it seems that the projected attitude toward those who are more capable in some area than us is one of disdain and distance. You're so good at that, and I hate you for it. We really do say that. You're so good at that, and I hate you for it. Now, I recognize the playfulness in that, but but the idea that I'm getting at, again, is this idea of the purposefulness of seeing people that are growing in godly virtue. And what is our response to that? Is our response that, that, that we, would, we would rather them not show us up? Or is our response, one, is, as the Apostle has said, let us spur one another on to good deeds. This is the idea, right, that we get at here. Personal, commendable virtue. Personal, this is you taking the Scriptures as your standard. Not those around you who you consider less virtuous than yourself. And the power of the Holy Spirit in a redeemed life, setting goals and accomplishing them in the areas of, say, for instance, being slow to speak and quick to listen. Not jumping to the defense of your own ideas. Refusing immediately to consider how you've been offended. Speaking truth acceptably to someone such that they will be inclined to trust you and change their lives because of it. Again, this first point, pursuing virtue. Pursuing virtue. It's commendable. Uh, This is you taking to yourself not the fake virtues of this world. The world has fake virtues. And social media has drawn you into those. And you have decided to develop those fake virtues. Because the people around you commend you for them. But the Bible directs us very clearly. As a matter of fact, it was applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. What was it that allowed Him to be declared mature? He could tell the good from the bad. The right from the wrong. Can we, can we reject false and fake virtues the world holds dear, such as quick and snarky responses, questionable business ethics, a selfish infatuation with self-care, and look at the real biblical virtues. For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Let me ask you a question. How many of you set goals? You don't have to raise your hand for this. How many of you set goals? You recognize that you have before you something uh, that you are persuaded God would have you do, and you recognize that you want to break this down into certain steps and so forth, and you want to, you're going to take these one, 
one step at a time and you recognize you've, you've proven the uh, success of that idea. Uh, those of us that are hopefully older than about 10 recognize that. So that's an important idea. But when's the last time you broke down goodness? And you said, I want to focus my attention on the personal virtue of goodness. And I'm going to set five steps in which I can grow in this. Real life steps where it can be manifested in actions. This idea. This is, this is the idea. This is commendable, consequential virtue. And this is the idea that we're getting at here. Also, we recognize that it's rare. It's unnatural. It's transformative. When's the last time you noticed someone's conspicuous virtue? I'm not talking about selfies here. We, we're very conspicuous people, right? Everything we do, we got got 100 pictures, and all of our friends have seen every single one of them, right? But, but the apostle here is talking about conspicuous virtue. The wise man Solomon is talking about conspicuous virtue. Where is it? What is it? I'm talking about you bragging about it. I'm talking about, I'm talking about you being a quiet individual that is merely involving himself in the virtues that God calls us to. This is an important ingredient in friendship. The, true, the virtue needed for true friendship is, is simply not available to the unredeemed. It's, it's transformative, it's rare, it's unnatural. 1 Timothy 5.25, So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Children, conspicuous. This, this idea that we do things out in the open. Have you ever hid? Have you ever done something you didn't want anybody to see? You didn't do that out in the open, right? But the Bible is calling us uh, to be a people who, who, uh, who are conspicuous in our faithfulness. Again, we're, we're not, I'm not talking about blowing your own horn here, right? We're not talking about shining a light on yourself. We're not talking about you being the movie star in your movie all day long, right? I'm talking about simply this idea that you really, without thinking, are building virtue into your life such that it's commendable, transformative, not only in your own life but those around. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and Good works. The Lord Jesus says in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light. Let your light what? Be put under a bushel? Is that what he says? No, he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and do what? And like you on Facebook. And give glory to your Father. That's what the Lord Jesus says. Now, to have the king as one's friend implies that the vast personal, positional differences between the king and the subject are counterbalanced by the beauty of friendship. Again, we mentioned the vast personal distinctions between the king and the subject. There's quite a bit there, right? There's a lot of difference between him and me. But true friendship closes the gap. 
This is this idea that the, that the wise man Solomon was getting to here. The reality is monarchs and subjects both must have friends, and in order to, to be friends, those things that would keep them apart, class differences, education levels, birth order, age, life experience, can and must be compensated by godly virtue. Inequities are neutralized in the kingdom of God, such that relationships can flourish and be kingdom building. If personal virtue is the thing that brings equity, If personal virtue is the thing that brings equity. That's in distinction of gifts, favors, pleasures, and honors. They can't accomplish that. I'm not saying it's wrong for you to get gifts, pleasures, and honors from those that are above you, but the reality is it can't sustain true friendship. That's what the wise man's getting at here in Proverbs 22. And in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This speaks of the importance of genuine sincerity and of the truth that we can't fake godly virtue for long. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I often think children of, of an orange or a lemon. We don't normally eat oranges, you know, peel them and eat them. You know what I mean? Do you ever do that? I don't ever do that. But what do we do with lemons is we squeeze them, right? And when we squeeze lemons, what comes out? Hopefully the, the good juice, right? We use the juice in very good things like cake, for instance, okay? But now, so the idea here is that what's inside comes out. In Proverbs 4.23, the wise man is telling us that. He's saying, look here, when you get the juice out of a lemon, you have to put tremendous pressure on the lemon, You know what I mean? You've got to squeeze that lemon. It looks rather violent, actually. You know what I'm talking about? And what we understand, the Bible is telling us, is that the pressures of life will reveal what's in us. We can't fake that forever. Right? That's why we have to guard our heart with all vigilance, because whatever's in there is coming out. Right? And whatever comes out needs to be that which can be described as pursuing virtue as we want to enjoy true friendship. Now that's the first point. The second point is this. The redeemed life is a life of spiritual progress. Real growth in grace and wisdom. A significant source of this is your friends. So the idea here is that you're firstly uh, pursuing virtue. Secondly, you're pursuing spiritual progress. Spiritual progress. Have you all ever been in an automobile that isn't moving and then the car beside you goes backwards? What does that feel like? It feels like you're going forwards, right? Have you ever considered that you might think that you're actually progressing spiritually when you watch someone else go backwards? That may be the way that we mark spiritual progress in our lives. Right? By simply selecting someone else to look at that isn't at the same place that we are. But the Bible, again, calls us to use as our standard the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. This idea that He expects for us, He has saved us for what? To sit at home in glory in ourselves? No. He saved us for good 
works. This idea of spiritual progress, that we might be putting and taking to ourselves these spiritual attributes looking more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So that we can, you know, turns out that God has made us. Uh, he has decided to associate our own happiness on this earth with our sanctification. Now that may seem like a trap, but it isn't. It's the way God has made us, right? So this idea, secondly, that we're pursuing spiritual progress, it's good not only for our own individual selves, but it's important for true friendship. Proverbs 27.17 says this, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Proverbs 27.17, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. So here's a question for us. Who are you sharpening and who is sharpening you? Who are you sharpening? Because again, this is, this is the way God has designed our lives to be. He's designed our lives to be, if you, if you want to describe them as objects that are to be sharp, then they're, they're, our lives are objects that need to be sharp, that are dulled very easily, that need to be continually sharpened. Now, there's an interesting aspect to this verse that I'm persuaded has some significance to our understanding. How many of you have sharpened knives? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have sharpened knives? Do you normally use a knife to sharpen that knife? No. But you see, the Bible here, the passage of Scripture says, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Now here's the deal. We recognize even from even in ancient history what was used to sharpen things was tended to be very hard abrasives, right? Very hard abrasive things like stone, not iron. The point I'm getting at is this. When the thing sharpening is made out of the same stuff of that is being sharpened, there's a certain limitation on what it can do. You see that? One man sharpens another. You see, this isn't to reject or to look down on the sharpening that we get from men. Why? Well, because in large measure, that's where your sharpening is going to come from, right? And so we need to realize that we need to be sharpened as God's people, of course, against the Word of God that is hard, able to sharpen, but also as we project, as we speak the truths in the people's lives, as we model for them uh, friendship, faithfulness, we'll see that to be true of us. We need to be sharpened, pursue progress. Do you shrink from being a true friend, a true friend by not being intentional in sharpening. You know, true friends are rare. And sometimes we we don't really want to spoil that relationship by bringing something up. Right? But the idea is that our relationship enjoys such depth and such love that we we can do that. Our very first verse had two aspects to it. It had pursuing virtue, but also this idea of gracious speech. This idea that, uh, that in order to be heard, and a, a great example of this is the way that Nathan approached David. 
after this affair with Bathsheba, he had her husband killed. So Nathan didn't burst through the door, tell David he was all jacked up. He didn't say that. He didn't do that. He drew him in by telling him a a very pointed story. And David, David was thankfully snared by the truth. So a question, what's the difference between being an annoying know-it-all, incessantly wind-jamming on all matters, and a sharpening friend? Job chapter 16, verses 1 and 3, Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you to that answer? There's a good bit of, uh, if you will, comedy or sarcasm in the book of Job. And one of them is right here. Job uses the word windy words. We have other synonyms for that. We might call it pontificating. We might call it wind jamming. We might call it a number of things. How many of us can speak incessantly about a certain subject or about your problem? Right? When it, in reality, we're not really, we're not really expressing true friendship because we don't actually know. That doesn't mean we can't know. It just means that the reality as humans is that we tend to say more than we know. Right? We tend, we tend to project a grasp of reality that is in fact deeper than we really know or experience. And one of the things that is practically universal, at least in the first of Job's three friends, or his first three friends, I should say, the most distinct aspect of theology that they were attempting to project on Job was absolutely wrong. They built their entire case against Job on a theology that was absolutely wrong. And we see the Lord coming in, of course, and saving the day and declaring that which was right and true. Proverbs 27.9, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Can we develop an appreciation for counsel that agrees or disagrees with our preconceived ideas? Our sanctified hunches are sometimes accurate and sometimes way off course. Do you have a good filter for this? And children, as you grow up, it's going to be important as you mature, you're going to be inclined not to ask people for counsel. Because you may be persuaded that the absolute mark of maturity is that you never ask for help. That you can do it all yourself. But what we see in the scriptures is that expressions of maturity have much to do with looking at the resources that God has given to you. And really living your life in such a transparent way as that people that you know and trust... Can, can really think about with you the life decisions that you have. It's really not that hard. You tell your friend, hey, you know what, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about buying this. I'm thinking about moving here. I'm thinking about pursuing this course of action. I'm thinking about studying this in school. I'm thinking about changing jobs. I'm thinking about any of these things. Do you have a friend that can earnestly think through that with you? And that can give you consequential 
counsel, as your friend, to help you in that regard. We pursuing uh, this idea of spiritual progress. The third idea here, the faithful life is a life of reproof. A life of reproof. The most needful and effective source of reproof is the Word of God delivered by your friends. Pursue reproof. Now, I am distinguishing between reproof and sharpening. Sharpening can, of course, in a sense be reproving, but reproof has a negative tone. Reproof is, has to do with correction. This idea, every, obviously not even most, not even, not even a small majority of our interactions with our friends will likely even be in the sharpening or the reproving, but nonetheless, we have to have reproof. The Bible's clear about that. Proverbs 27, 6, Faithful are the, fr- are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Do you have a friend? Or are you a friend that wounds you? Do you have a friend who would wound you? Who would, who would in the course of speaking graciously to you the truths about a certain situation and exhortation to a certain path in life, uh, really a revelation perhaps of something that you've not noticed yourself, perhaps the way you talk to people, perhaps something that you're doing that uh, you shouldn't do or something along those lines. Do you have a friend that will wound you in that way? It's not that hard to be a brash, opinionated friend. The real challenge is whether you can develop a relationship where you not only are comfortable bringing reproof, but where it can be received and bring about needful sanctification. I'd like to draw your attention to a narrative in the book of Acts. In chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. I want, to, I want you to consider four different people here. I want you to consider the Apostle Paul. I want you to consider a couple, Aquila and Priscilla. Children, can you say Aquila? 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 Priscilla? It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? Aquila? Priscilla? And then lastly, Apollos. Right? Let's look at Acts chapter 18. Verses 1 through 4. After this, this is Paul in Corinth. Paul left Athens, went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Here's the Apostle Paul. Now, he was drawn to Aquila and Priscilla and spent time with them, lived with them. What was it that drew them together? Well, a number of things. But one of the noteworthy things is they were of the same profession. They were both tent makers, right? And so they came together. But we also see uh, that they had the faithful understanding of the gospel and that they were certainly sharpening one another in this regard, right? And verse 11 says, He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. 
Verse 18, After this Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila at century he had, his, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And then an interesting course of action here in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And so we see here that the Apostle Paul had a relationship with Aquila and Priscilla, and we see that that part of the, the fruit, the continued fruit of that relationship was that they had a relationship with Apollos, who was a very eloquent speaker, one who could have a commanding presence regarding the gospel, but they recognized right in their friendship, in their in their true friendship and love for him based on truth, right, they explained to him the gospel more fully. He of course took that in and became more useful for the kingdom. There's a difference between a wound regarding wounding a friend and a death blow. Further, our friendship certainly shouldn't be described as death by a thousand wounds for my friends. With friends like this, who needs enemies? Strategy, time, place, authenticity, sincerity, true love, all must be present for a true consequential reproof. So again, here's here's the idea. Do I have a relationship and am I in a position such that there's love between us and that you can actually accept what I'm saying to you? Something, something that would involve you changing a certain course of action. Some way that you might be encouraged by your friend to change the way you think about something. And that requires persuasion. It requires doing some homework. It requires a number of uh, perhaps conversations that hadn't involved sharpening or reproof in any way, but that you would come to them and set up an environment whereby you would hope that your exhortation, if you will, or your desire to sharpen or to help or even to reprove would be received by them such that they would then grow in grace. This is the idea. Do you have friends like that? Because we see that what, what it is that God has called us to requires that. It requires us to be people who are faithful, who are committed to the Word of God, who, who, uh, who go out with the Gospel, uh, speaking about the Gospel in terms that are accurate with the Scriptures. That's very, very important. Uh, such that we can present to a dying world the glories of living with Christ, of a family that has embraced the truths of Scripture, that is, in fact, walking in redemption, this idea. Are you pursuing reproof? It's also true that some seem too ready to bring correction. They seem to speak primarily on two subjects, expressing dissatisfaction with our own circumstances and expressing dissatisfaction with the way you do everything. This constant barrage of correction is rightly compared to the contentious woman who's like a dripping rain. Now, I like a dripping rain when I'm hearing it and not feeling it. 
So the idea here is the dripping rain that's spoken of in the Proverbs is this thing that is falling on your head. Drip. 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 Every single drip. An annoyance from one who says they're your friend. As a matter of fact, the Bible would recommend that you live in the corner of the roof instead of endure this kind of dripping. Are you that kind of friend? That's not true friendship. That can't be true friendship. Right? Proverbs 15, 31-33. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom, and humility comes before honor. The Bible is prophetic, is it not? But sometimes you see prophecy in places you don't really expect to see it, and Proverbs 15 is a place of that. The Bible prophesies that humility comes before honor. You want to enjoy honor? Humility comes before it. Do you see a fall? What was before that fall? Pride. You see pride? What happens next? A fall, right? And so we see this idea here. Proverbs 15, 9 through 12. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. There's severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Pursue reproof. Pursue reproof. Did you ever consider it in such stark terms? He who rejects reproof will die. That's pretty stark. That's pretty abrupt, right? It doesn't say, you know, it's just not going to go quite as well for you. You won't enjoy, you know, quite the glories of walking with the Lord. No, no, no. When you reject reproof, you'll not live. That's what the Bible says. Fourthly, life is filled with unforeseen difficulties. We need help. We need help with these things. Your friends will be who you call for help, so pursue helpful skills. Proverbs 17.17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. The question is, do you have margins in your life that allow time to help others in need? Do you have margins in your life that allow time to help others in need? This is a challenging thing. We live in very busy, very demanding times. But the question is, have you built into your life the ability, if someone calls you, right? can you say, you know what, I can either be here right now, or I can come on Tuesday after work, or I can do these sorts of things. Have you built into your life margins? And the same is true for many other things. Some, some of you set aside a portion uh, of your giving uh, so that you can give to charitable things or maybe people that need financial help or whatnot. What a, what a wonderful thing it is to have a margin financially such that you can give, right? 
right? It's, it's kind of pain-free, right? You, you've already set that aside, right? And that's the idea. Certainly you do that with your tithe as well, I'm sure. How eager are you to step into someone's hardship? What tools and skills can you bring? Job's so-called friends would have improved the entire outlook of the situation if instead of their wind jamming on theological issues, they had simply brought over lasagna and chocolate chip cookies. They didn't do that. They decided to spend all their time talking about stuff they didn't know anything about. And they didn't help Job at all. They just frustrated him. Not helpful, right? Very destructive. They didn't have margins in their lives. Yeah, they came... But what did they do? They didn't, they didn't build into their lives the theological skill necessary just to maybe sit there and say nothing and then pray with Job, right? And not whinge him. Proverbs 27.10 Do not forsake your friend and your father's friend and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. Again, the idea of pursuing help, pursuing helpful skills in your relationships. The admonition here is on the proximity of friendly help. Lastly, I would draw your attention to the simple truism that false friends will let you down. A man of many companions, Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Certainly a distinction here between companions and friends. Proverbs 19.4, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. This type of friendship, again, is not true friendship. This idea. So, we're pursuing virtue. We're pursuing... Uh, this idea of spiritual progress. We're pursuing uh, people that uh, will reprove us. And we're also pursuing uh, helpful skills. This idea that what, what can I bring? What am I developing? Here's the deal. Some of us spend inordinate amounts of time doing things that are not going to help our friends. They have nothing to do with that, right? They have nothing to do with that. And so, and so really the admonition here in the Proverbs, I am persuaded, is that I need to consider a portion of my time, right, as an individual, as a man, right, in working on skills that are in fact valuable to the kingdom and to the people that God has put around me. When everything goes bad at your neighbor's house, What do you got? (laughs) What do you got? I mean, I don't think you need to go fill up your garage with like, you know, sump pumps and generators and all that. But I mean, you know, the idea again is what, what can I bring? Job's friends uh, brought an absolute lack of theological wisdom when they should have brought lasagna and chocolate chip cookies. What can I bring? Do you do that well? Bring it. Bring it. Now, I'm persuaded that all of us have latent in the gifting that God has given us, these wonderful skills, abilities. Uh, What a glorious thing uh, that as we see one another come together and work on certain projects and and physical things that we do, what what a glorious thing that is. And so 
Let us be a people, again, who recognize that our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is one that is described and designed, as well as our friendships, uh, those who are members of our church that we're, we're talking about today, right? That we have a relationship that is more and more defined as true friendship. We need those people in our lives. We, we, we can't function without them. And we need friends, and so the Bible says that the one who is friendly, right, will have friends. The one who has developed these things that we're talking about, right, pursuing virtue, pursuing the ability to be helpful, right, pursuing someone who will reprove you, pursuing an ability to earnestly receive and give sharpening, and that's the idea here. But of course, not possible. Not possible without redemption. The Lord Jesus, John the Baptist, all the apostles that followed said this simple thing, and of course it must be true, you must be born again. Let's pray.